You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis Day. Don, I had so much rain yeah. last week. It was amazing. And then and then next week, we've got a, well, a warm wave. It's, it's not a heat wave. It's not going to be over 100, but it's right. going to be warm. Yeah, so we, what's going on? We had some interesting rainfall totals. The official weather station, the Simis Weather Station, which is an automated weather station west of UC Davis campus out towards the Primate Center, for those of you familiar with the region, did not record any rainfall. We had enough on our farm outside of Dixon to get the ground wet and make things look really nice and coagulate the dust droplets on my my truck windshield, but not much more than that. And then folks like you here and there around town said, oh my goodness, it really came well, down. And there were some places where it apparently really did come down. It came down so hard and and, and it came twice. It, you know, did one, then it waited for an hour and did another one. And I went out and looked outside. There was a half an inch of water standing on my back patio. It was a local. That's a lot of rain. In what? Yeah, in one area, and others mentioned the same thing. For those of you outside of this area, rain in in late September, early October is rather unusual here. Uh, in fact, it can do some pretty serious harm to local crops if it's serious. It wasn't. It rained briefly. It cleared up. It got windy. The sun came out, and all those people still harvesting tomatoes and harvesting, um, pick, beginning to pick up the walnuts that have been shaken off the trees, breathed a sigh of relief, and went back to what they were doing. Crops in the area here are harvested September even into October. They're still filling big trucks with the canning tomatoes. The last of them are being picked up now. They've started, they finished shaking the almonds and they picked them up. They're now shaking the walnuts or beginning to shake the walnuts. And uh, they don't want a lot of rain on the ground when this is all happening. But fortunately, it dried out pretty quickly from the farmer's standpoint. It is Wednesday, October 4th, as Lois and I are preparing this for broadcast on Thursday, October 5th. Today's high is going to be 87 degrees. Tonight will be 58. Sunny and clear throughout the forecast period. Thursday, the day of the show is going to warm up to 91 and full sun. Thursday night, clear 57 degrees. Friday, here's our brief warming trend. We're going to be 91 degrees on Friday. Friday night, also 57 degrees. Saturday, the warmest of the upcoming days, 94 degrees. And Saturday night, also 57 degrees. Sunday, 88. And here's a rapid cool down coming. Columbus Day, Monday, 80 Tuesday, slight chance of showers, 76. So back to the <laughs> the whiplash, the weather whiplash here will be cooling off rather rapidly and a slight chance of showers. It looks like this next storm is passing by, but we might see some of it. Let's look at the extended forecast, see how the weather service is describing this. Okay, technical jargon. A trough to the east will begin to move into the area Sunday bringing onshore flow and cooler temperatures. Tuesday is seeing chances for rain, 20 to 40% chance of measurable precipitation occurring across the Sacramento Valley by Tuesday night. Highest chances are in the North Valley. 
we're in the South Valley. For those of you who are not familiar with the area, temperatures will also cool with the entrance of the trough. Highs will be in the high 70s to low 80s in the valley. Oh my goodness, that'll be beautiful. Mid 60s to low 70s in the foothills and mountains. And then ridging, which means high pressure and warmer, may begin to push the low out on Wednesday with some slightly warming temperatures late next week and bringing back northerly winds. So sort of a typical fall pattern here. No extreme highs. Uh, we have had 100 degree temperatures in the first week of October. Historically, it has happened here. Not commonly, but it you know it's not unknown. But I think I'm going out on a limb here. We're probably past our 100 degree weather for this year, at least for the pattern I'm seeing and the you know the the the, the next seven to ten days. So it seems unlikely that we're going to get up over 100 degrees. So a question came up. It's come up more than once, actually. People coming in chatting about their tomatoes not having done well, or my it seemed like a this kind of summer, that kind of summer. We had 13 days above 100 degrees this summer. That's pretty average. Yeah, it's pretty average, actually low end of average. We had about 44 days in the 90s, which is higher than is optimal for pollination weather on tomatoes, but um, uh, still good for them to grow and, and, and for the fruit to ripen correctly. So that's 57 days, 90 or over 100. In other words, 57 days out of about 120 that were not suitable for pollination. Therefore, that's about half. Yeah, about half, which is actually, I went back and crunched these numbers years ago. So off the top of my head, that's just about our average here is about half the summer days are suitable for self-pollination of tomatoes in general, and about half of them are too hot. We had a summer three or four years ago where it was closer to 60, 70% that were too hot and people didn't get great yields that year. This year, if it was a poor year for your tomatoes, it wasn't probably temperature related here in the Sacramento Valley. It was probably related to some other problem. Uh, Watering. Watering was the most common. Sure, chatting with the master gardeners who do the table down at the uh, farmer's market. At this point, when someone walks up and talks about problems they had in their vegetable garden, I think we discussed this last week. First two questions, is it a raised planter? How are you watering? Because those seem to be the common issues. But we've already talked about that. In general, pretty mild summer, pretty mild weather coming up and feeling a lot like fall here in the Sacramento Valley. Now, long-term forecasts with the impact of El Nino. Uh, I know the National Weather Service has just issued their El Nino up update and there we'll talk about that more next week independent meteorologists are basically looking at this and puzzling scratching their heads because of some very high ocean temperatures that might become a complicated factor in the whole thing but overall it's looking like october may be warmer and milder than september was <laughs> so no one's going to complain here about temperatures in the 80s in october that's uh, that's pretty nice we've had some questions about leaves turning color. And I don't mean leaves looking anemic and yellow turning color. I mean like fall color showing up on some trees. And uh, more broadly, we can talk about why that happens. But why does it happen early on some trees and not on others? Very commonly here, for example, the Chinese pistache, which is our primary leaf color tree in this area, um, the ones along Highway 113 start turning color early. And partly that might be a microclimate thing, but more likely they're completely unirrigated. So they're probably, yes, they're responding perhaps to drought. But we've also had some nights below 55, some nights even below 50. We hit 49 degrees a couple of nights. Tree species vary in their sensitivity to day length and temperature and drought factors with respect to turning color. And so we, it's not uncommon actually for us to have some trees in October turning color when really most of our fall color here is in the month of November and into early December. So this is a difference that you see primarily, we've always assumed based on 
where it is, how exposed it is, you know, Highway 113 with asphalt and all around and completely unirrigated trees, trees and yards that are irrigated, looking nice and green and lush and verdant and not showing any sign of fall color. Most likely, in the case of that species, it's a stress-related phenomenon triggered by brief intervals of low temperature, and we've had those. So some of those trees will turn color, and now we'll be back into the 90s, and you'll have trees turning color. That gets confusing for Californians. Our main fall color season here is November. That's when we. That's when I go out and take pictures of all the trees here that have lovely fall color, which are Chinese pistache and ginkgos, and still some clariana pears are out there, some maples are out there. These are the trees that really have nice fall color. Interestingly, you might note that none of those are native species. So our native trees generally just turn kind of yellow. If you want spectacular fall color, you look at some of these that, that are from other places in the world. KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, head on over to KDRT.org, KDRT.org, and click on the support button. We always like to mention Arboretum events, especially this time of year, because they're having their big plant sales. They had one on Saturday. I, judging by the traffic I went by on my way in that morning, I would say it was heavily attended. I hope it was a success. The traffic was backed up all the way to Russell Boulevard from where you turn off to go to uh, the Arboretum headquarters there. So that was the first sale of the three that they have each fall. The next one is Saturday, October 21. Saturday, October 21. It's a split plant sale, as they say, members only, 9 to 11 a.m., open to the public, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Location is the Arboretum Teaching Nursery. I strongly recommend you go to arboretum.ucdavis.edu and find the map because I could describe to you how to get there, but it's a lot easier to use, it, use an app or a map. Uh, you got two hours of member-only shopping and 10% off their plant sale purchases. Not a member? Well, heck, you can join at the door and shop early and save. And then the second two hours, if you don't want to do that, open to everyone. So I want to say, tell you about an amusing thing that got sent to us. Uh, when you do radio shows, I do a jazz show and we also do this one. And of course, we're constantly being contacted by people oh, who want me to play their jazz on the air or want us to talk about their garden product. And I'm just going to foreshadow an upcoming program that Lois and I are going to do. We received an email from a company called Monty Compost. Monty Compost. It's an app for your compost pile. From Australia. Well, it's from Australia, yes. Presumably it works here. Um, it's, it's something that you can use to monitor your compost pile at all times on your phone. And I had so many amusing thoughts about this, but basically what it monitors apparently is temperature, uh, moisture status, and gas production in your compost pile. Why would those things matter? Well, as I said, I'm foreshadowing. We're going to talk a little bit more about composting as we get to leaf drop season because there's a strong connection between composting and leaf drop season. So just to let you know, there are apps out there, there's thermometers out there, there's things you can buy to make your composting much more technologically savvy. But composting is a really basic thing. Uh, if you want to follow all that stuff on your phone, that's fine. But there are some real simple principles and we will talk about those. One of the basic ones is um, don't let to go dry <laughs> here in, here in the central valley if you just throw stuff in a pile and don't water it you just have a brush pile that's different than a compost pile <laughs> so we'll come back to this we promise okay and then uh, let's see we had another point of contact from someone what was that 
Um, oh, that's that is that book. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a collection yeah. of gardening poems, and I think I'm going to try and find either the editor or the authors and have them on my show sometime. But this book is all about gardens. Leaning toward light, poems for gardens and the hands that tend them. And we thought we'd mention this early. First of all, Lois may do a follow-up show on this, but also this sounds like a really great Christmas gift idea. If you're looking for something for the gardener in your life. So I'll read that name again, leaning toward light poems for gardens and the hands that tend them. It's uh, edited by Tess Taylor, who is the NPR, all things considered on air poetry reviewer. And I was immediately attracted to the fact that the very first blurb, you know, how they put blurbs on books from, from prominent people who uh, are telling you how good the book is. Well, Alice Waters, chef author, food activist, one of the most famous people in California, if you're into food and gardening, founder of Chez Panisse Restaurant and the Edible Schoolyard Project simply says, quote, this collection brings together many of my favorite writers to celebrate the limitless offerings of nature. Wandering through its pages feels like taking a long stroll through a beautiful garden. Leaning towards light, poems for gardens and the hands that tend them on sale now. So Don, it is October and the leaves are just barely starting to change color, but they're going to they're going to be doing it in, in in a week or two. I would like to ask you about the color in leaves. Why is there a change? Why does the leaf green now and yeah. then yellow then and then drop yeah, well, off and gone later? Because Jack Frost comes into your garden at night and magically paints the leaves. <laughs> oh, isn't that the, isn't that the story you were told? <laughs> Well, first of all, I think that was the one that Santa Claus told me. Yeah, (laughs) she teams up with the tooth fairy and then goes out and paints the leaves at night. Um, The days get shorter, the nights get colder. Yes, those are two factors, but also stress. We've mentioned that some trees are already turning color. And this is the thing. Species differ as to how they respond to shorter days and colder temperatures, presumably based on where they evolved. Uh, But trees that have adapted to cold winter climates actually go through several steps as we get closer to winter and it's temperature related we know that part of it is is primarily temperature related it's also mediated somewhat by longer nights shorter days in reaction to that the plant begins to form a layer at the base of the leaves uh, that blocks the movement of carbohydrates the, the sugars and the starches out of the leaf and blocks the movement of minerals into the leaf and that's called an abscission layer because later it gets brittle and it abscises which means the leaf falls off an important point about that abscission layers vary in how effective they are and there are trees that form a weak or poorer abscission layer and those leaves turn color and they turn brown they hang on there certain oaks do that we call that marcescence they just don't form a strong abscission layer and so those leaves don't fall off until like the storms drive them off later they may go through fall color and then turn brown and hang there looking dead Certain oaks, pin oak is a good example. Um, that's one of the reasons we don't even sell that tree because people would plant them, they'd grow great and turn into these big, beautiful 40 by 40 foot trees. And the leaves would turn kind of a nice color and then turn brown and hang there and the tree looks dead all the way until March in the case of that species. So that's a brief thing about the abscission layer, how it varies by species. Most other oaks form better abscission layers. Most trees that have good fall color form a pretty strong abscission layer. Uh, before that happens the plant is producing less chlorophyll simply because the days are getting shorter there's less sunlight has less stuff to make chlorophyll from and chlorophyll is the green leaf pigment that you all know it's also the most fragile pigment it breaks down very quickly compared to other pigments that are in the leaf 
usually the plant is replenishing it constantly and very quickly. But as it breaks down and becomes less abundant in the leaf, the less common pigments that are yellow and orange become visible. So those are the first fall colors you see, yellow to orange. Not spectacular, not vivid, but showing you that there's a change in progress and kind of pretty in their own way, but more subtle. Those colors were already present in the leaf. You're just seeing them now because the chlorophyll is gone. And the first reaction usually follows the calendar, although severely drought-stressed plants will begin to go dormant sooner than others. You're saying that, that the leaf already has the yellow and orange in it, yeah. along with green, and we just aren't seeing the yellow and orange because the green's so strong? Yeah, and there's other plants that, that always have some of those pigments uh, or reddish pigments in stronger, in larger numbers. You know, red leaf plums are not green leaf, they're red leaf. It just has much more of a particular pigment, and it's actually visible in that particular case. The others, the yellow and the orange, were there. They're contributing, contributing to the tone of green that you see, but the chlorophyll so overwhelms all the other pigments that green is the dominant color. Bright green, dark green really depends on whether those other pigments, what proportion they are in the leaf. They're present, but you weren't seeing them because of chlorophyll being present. It breaks down, breaks down pretty quickly. You start to see the yellow and the orange. Now, some minerals are mobile within the plant. This is really important, actually, when it comes to fertilizer and other things, but important in this respect as well. They move in the plant from one place to another as needed. The plant moves phosphorus out of the leaf into the stem where it's stored during cold weather. Well, that phosphorus leaving the leaf changes the chemical reaction in the leaves, and the remaining trapped carbohydrates are now made into certain other pigments, most notably red and purple. And those are the spectacular colors that we see next, the second stage of fall color in trees that have it. They weren't there before. The plant is making them now from what's left in the leaf. So the first color change is pigments that were present suddenly becoming visible. The more bright and dramatic color change, which happens only in some species, is pigments that are formed as the chlorophyll is breaking down and as the process is unfolding. And some trees make more of those pigments than others do. Some, it varies not just between species, it varies within cultivars. There's genetic differences of seedlings within a species. Example is that I grew Chinese pistache, which is one of the most beautiful fall color trees we have in this area. Before the advent of a male cultivar with carefully selected for fall color that was grafted and available to the public, we could only get Chinese pistache grown from seed. Seedling grown Chinese pistache varied widely as to how brilliant their fall color was. Some of them were just boring yellow and orange. Some of them were that flame red that everybody wants. I wanted a grove of nicely colored Chinese pistache on the property. So I bought a flat of seedlings, liners as we call them in the nursery industry, little two inch pots of baby Chinese pistache trees. And I set them out and I kept them watered until fall. And all the ones that turned color, I saved and I threw out all the others. <laughs> and I took the little seedlings that had nice fall color and oh planted my. them out. Yeah, so this is what you had to do in the old days. Planted them out on my farm where they've made a lovely grove 25 years later of beautifully colorful Chinese pistache with some variation, bright orange, bright red. Also, of the six that survived that process, three are male and three are female. And that's what happens when you grow Chinese pistache from seed. Mm -hmm. 
dioecious tree. I don't mind having the female trees. Cedar waxwings love the berries. Extremely bird active, actually, on the female trees during the winter time because those berries hang on there. But for the average backyard gardener, those fruit are a nuisance, and so they really want the male with a reliable fall color. But that was the old days. How you had to get good fall color on a Chinese pistache was just by selecting seedlings that had good fall color. Well, of course, now you can buy cultivars that have been selected for that. So there are genetic differences of seedlings within a species, and there are cultivars or varieties, as we call them, of different trees that have been selected for fall color and then propagated clonally. Variation in temperature from year to year, nutrient status of the specimen you're looking at definitely also affects fall color. And within those species that have the pigments to begin with, sunny, clear days and cool nights clearly encourage the production of more of the red and purple pigments. So in a nice clear fall with cool, crisp nights, we get better fall color than in a more drab fall or a warmer fall. A tree with adequate nutrition, with more basic material to work with to create pigment, trees that are overwatered have damaged root hairs and may have poorer fall color. We see this all over Davis. Uh, most common question that I'll get as we get into this time of year is why are the pistache trees turning color here but not here? Do I want that one? Is it something that's different between the cultivars? Well, some of that is seedling variation because many of the older trees, most of the older trees in our area were grown from seed. The, the cultivar Keith Davy didn't really become available until about 20, 25 years ago. And we've been planting Chinese pistachio for a hundred years. So many of the, most of those are seedling grown. So that's one part of the variability. But the other part is that most of the trees that turn color early are just not watered. They're unirrigated trees. Chinese pistache can live just fine here unirrigated once established, but will enter dormancy earlier because of drought stress, particularly sustained drought stress. Um, this last couple of years, we've had more rainfall, so we may see a difference in the fall color, but typically those trees do start to turn color before the ones in people's backyards. Uh, locally, there's a number of trees that give us really nice fall color, none of which, as I mentioned before, happen to be native. Chinese pistache, ginkgo, beautiful golden fall color. Some of the maples that do grow here. If you're living in the Sacramento Valley, please be aware that many maples scorch here and don't grow well. They are not happy about our dry heat and they're not drought tolerant. But there are some exceptions. There are some of the maples that have nice fall color that do well here and they don't get all burnt in the summertime. Autumn blaze, um, red sunset, uh, acer trunk the Shantung maple. There are maples you can grow here to get that beautiful maple fall color that actually take our summers as well. But you need to ask locally because that's, that's going to vary from one region to another. We generally don't sell a lot of maples for this area because they're not drought tolerant, but uh, some of them will take the heat better. So some maples will do well. There are still Caleriana pears out there, the Bradford pear being the most famous in the group. They're gradually all being removed, but they do have spectacular fall color. So those are good examples of things that we see locally. And another one I should mention, just because people ask about it, is the regular old Modesto ash, which has been planted widely in the valley since the early 1960s, and unfortunately has a lot of problems. So they're being taken out, but they do turn a beautiful golden yellow fall color, and there's a lot of them in East Davis. So people tend to ask about them. You said that before the cloning stuff, you would select from a group of seedlings the ones that had pretty fall color <laughs> my question here is so if i have a, a bunch of seedlings and i go "Ooh, that's a pretty one and i take it out and i plant it is that seedling every year going to have the same kind of fall color and i don't mean differences in weather i mean do they change as they get old as they grow up 
Their environment can affect that. In the days before we had the male cultivar of, of Keith Davy pistache, uh, people would go into nurseries in the fall to try and choose them in color because they wanted, if it was red in the nursery, it was gonna be red in your yard essentially forever, right? Okay, so uh, this led to this complicated and really annoying process where people would keep coming in to look at our Chinese pistache to see if they were turning color. And just for the record, a nicely grown, well-watered, well-fertilized 15-gallon Chinese pistache doesn't turn color until like four weeks after the ones out in the landscape out. So nurseries go through would go through this process. And I remember some customers who were very particular about it. Oh, that's too orange, that's not red enough, blah, blah, blah. In general, yes, the the what's the the tint or the hue or the uh, the range of color is going to be the same. However, the environment may affect that. And I had one customer who got permission to drive up to a wholesale yard, which is a little higher elevation than we are, uh, so they, their their trees turn color earlier. Selected a tree there, folks. Most wholesalers will never ever do this, and this is why. <laughs> Went up there, selected from their selection their block of trees, one that had really nice fall color, had it delivered to my nursery so we could get it to their house and they got it planted. And it was in an enclosed courtyard with concrete all around and flagstone or brick or something paving. So really warm, really nicely warm patio going into fall and winter. Great place, by the way, probably to have, I don't know, your bougainvilleas and maybe overwinter some pepper plants, things like that. It's never ever had fall color since. They chose it for its fall color. I see this customer periodically. He comes in every so often. We joke about it. So this is at least 20 plus years ago. It's a beautiful tree. It turns kind of yellow orange. It was flame red when he picked it out from that particular garden center or particular wholesale grower. So there are environmental factors. There are certainly soil nutritional factors. But in general, to answer your question, if you pick it out with red leaves, it'll have red leaves in the future unless something weird goes wrong in its particular environment. So there are variables, but one of the reasons that the Keith Davy pistache, and there's another one out there called Pearl Street, one of the reasons they became very popular is that they had reliable, real, really reliable, bright red, I mean, flame red fall color, and they're male trees, and that way people don't get the fruit litter problem from them. So there's other trees with fall color. Obviously, if you're listening in climates where it's more normal fall conditions, you probably have a whole lot of other species. It's something we do have here, but it's, again, it's non-native species. I'll get the question at some point, I'm sure, shortly. Are there any native trees that have beautiful fall color? Are native trees here in the valley, which are primarily oaks? The answer is no. It's it's okay. It's subtle. It's kind of pretty in its own California-ish way, but it's not bright red. And I can't think of any native species here in the valley floor or even from the, the foothills or the coast range that have spectacular fall color. Pretty but muted is the term I like to use. So, Don, we have a question from, well, it's not really a question. It's a request. It's from Ilya in Tiburon, which mm -hmm. is over on the coast. And they would like to get instructions on how to fertilize plants, something other than the package's list of proportions. They're looking for a seasonal schedule on fertilizing plants. Does, does such a thing exist as it makes sense? They do exist, although most of the work that's been done on that is for fruit trees, because obviously uh, farmers care about when is the most effective and, and most efficient time to apply nitrogen, primarily being what they're applying. And they have done a lot of research on how effectively and uh, safely to apply, I say safely, to avoid pollution, to avoid contaminating groundwater, how to get it into the tree so that they get the maximum benefit from something they're spending money on. And it's just a straight spreadsheet analysis for them. I buy this fertilizer, my yield goes up. They're Therefore, it's a reasonable thing to do. Um, 
that's information is out there for deciduous fruit trees. It's out there for citrus, which are handled rather differently, interestingly. The problem uh, with what fertilizer manufacturers do, and this has bothered me as long as I've been in the nursery business, is that they want you feeding all the time. And that isn't necessarily desirable. It can lead to pollution and it's unnecessary in most cases. Many of the major fertilizer manufacturers would have you fertilizing monthly or twice in the spring, twice in the fall, that kind of thing. It's a complicated subject, but I'll boil it down to this. You shouldn't apply anything other than nitrogen without knowing that your soil needs it. And the only way you'll know if your soil needs it is by having a soil test done, which you can do. It's pretty easy. There's companies out there that do it. You can find them wherever you're listening. The local master gardeners or cooperative extension, UC extension folks may have suggestions for who you could get the soil tests done by. Your local nursery might have suggestions. The soil test kits you buy, I've sold them, but I always tell people these are not super accurate. They'll give you some sort of a range. If you're really deficient or more likely really in excess of something, you'll get that information from them. But wherever you're listening, um, you should at some point, if your plants aren't doing well, if you're not getting the results you expect, don't assume it's a nutritional problem, but have a soil test done. See if you are deficient in something. When they're done in our area, I know what the answer is going to be. So I can usually say, oh, fine, go ahead and do that. But I can tell you every soil test I've looked at in this area pretty much is in this range on the following macronutrients. So you don't need to go out and buy a balanced fertilizer ever. That may be the only option available to you, but balance is one where the numbers are the same, 10, 10, 10, 12, 12, 12. That's never necessary. Uh, phosphorus and potassium are usually not deficient in our area and applying them phosphorus in particular can eventually lead to some problems if you overdo it. Mainly it's nitrogen that you're almost sure to need. They won't even test for that typically on most soil tests because it's not, it's difficult to test for it accurately. The answer is not going to give you a lot of information that you'll find useful because it comes and goes so quickly in the soil and in crop plants, vegetables and fruit trees, they're almost always basically deficient in nitrogen. So that's the one thing you would typically want to apply. And typically we apply it either in the spring or the fall or both. The only reason for that is that there's less risk of burning a plant with it at those times of year. Uh, you could do it midsummer if you're sure careful to water it in. The problem with giving a guide is that the sources of nitrogen are wildly variable as to how quickly they release their nitrogen. If you use a synthetic fertilizer, such as ammonium sulfate, just one example, 2100. 21% nitrogen, all ammonia, zero phosphorus, zero potassium, so just nitrogen, very soluble, easy to get down into the root zone, quickly turns into ammonia gas. So if you don't water it in, 30 or 40% of it just floats off into the atmosphere and you wasted your time and money. So be sure to water it in or incorporate it. But with ammonium sulfate, you can literally just water it in. It's that soluble. It'll stay in the soil for four or five weeks. Okay, so if you're using that, one feeding in the spring, well, that's like eating a Twinkie before you go on a marathon run. It's really not going to give you what you need. Um, it'll be gone. If you are deficient in nitrogen, you'd have to do that repeatedly. And that was, by the way, the standard fertilizer that was used on particularly fruit trees for decades. And so many of the old fertilizer schedules you'll run into that'll tell you put this much nitrogen on twice in the spring and once in the fall, you're doing it that often because your source of nitrogen was so fast released and then gone that you had to keep applying it. If you took a comparable organic fertilizer, probably not going to have 21% nitrogen, but if something with a fairly high nitrogen content, blood meal or something like that, you put many of these organic forms, manure type fertilizers or guano fertilizers on, many of them won't release all their fertilizer even in the first year. 
So you put them on in the spring, they're releasing nitrogen to the plant fairly steadily at a rate, in my opinion, the rate the plant needs it. Organic material is help is, helps to feed the bacteria that break down the fertilizers that make it that go through the two or three step process that makes the nitrogen available to the plant. Very little risk of overdoing it. Even with fish emulsion, it's hard to burn. And so you can put them on anytime. If it's July and it's 100 degrees, you can put an organic fertilizer on because it's going to take 10 days probably to even start breaking down and probably won't release all of its nitrogen even in the course of the first summer. So the key issue is it depends on what kind of nitrogen you're using and what, what the source is and what the crop is. And we're talking generally about food-related crops. Ornamentals, you really only fertilize them if they're not doing well. And if there's a pH issue, you might try to address that, although it's challenging to change pH. If they're not flowering, it's not a fertilizer issue usually. That's one of the most common questions we get. Why is my hydrangea not flowering? Do I need to apply phosphorus? No, that's a myth. It's probably not flowering because your husband pruned it at the wrong time of year <laughs> or, or it's in too much shade or something like that. Don't look to a fertilizer solution to a plant performance problem unless it's lack of growth. And nitrogen is what stimulates growth. So it's a complicated subject, but I will say in general, spring and fall are the times we usually fertilize and if you use an organic type it doesn't really matter when because it'll go it'll feed steadily if you use a conventional synthetic type important to do it when it's not super hot and be sure to water it in thoroughly right away so we're generally not using those midsummer at least here in the valley now in marin that's probably not as big an issue however having said all that if you're growing things in raised planters it's always the raised planter exception or containers they need a steady supply of nutrients because they're all gone very quickly. If you filled your raised planter with the commercial topsoil that you purchased from the local rock yard, even if they added organic material or even manure, one locally will, will blend in manure for you. That's a one season thing, maybe goes into the second season and then it's all drained out of the root zone. So people with raised planters find they perform more and more poorly as time goes by, unless they take multiple steps to increase, particularly the nitrogen and sometimes the other nutrients in the raised planter. So there you need to feed through the season with either a soluble fertilizer that you like, whether it's one of the commercial packaged products or something like fish emulsion is also fine, or an organic base that you put on at the time of planting and then maybe again mid-season and you start up the fall planting. Remember, that's a whole start of another crop cycle. So you go ahead and put some fertilizer in when you do them. That's going to be necessary for a raised planter. And it's going to be necessary for those of you doing containers. You can keep things alive in containers for decades as long as you give them a steady supply of nutrients. But they won't hold those nutrients because of the nature of the soil you use. They'll just drain right out. So you have to keep reapplying them lightly, gently, steadily through the season. So the raised planter exception, which is always our exception for watering and nutrients, other than that, typically, you don't really need to fertilize all the time. Uh, you should go by plant performance. And in the case of the other nutrients, phosphorus, potassium, or the micronutrients, an apparent deficiency should be addressed, but not necessarily by applying a fertilizer. If you have an iron deficiency or a clear magnesium deficiency in the leaf, which local nurseries and master gardeners can probably identify for you pretty carefully without too much difficulty, you can apply those things, but you want to ask yourself first, why is this deficient in the plant when they're not usually deficient in the soil? So why is an iron deficiency manifesting in the plant? That's it, roots. Roots are having a problem roots. of some sort. And it could be that the that particular nutrient, iron or magnesium, is locked up in a mineral form that the plant can't take up because of lack of mycorrhiza or because of a lack of because of a high pH. Fairly common problem in our area. Perfectly healthy plants showing iron deficiency simply because the pH of our water and thus our soil is pretty high. You can try and correct that with sulfur 
Or in some cases, just don't worry about it. Citrus can have micronutrient deficiencies and grow and fruit just fine in spite of, you know, I could go out right now and find you three different micronutrient deficiencies on my mandarins. I got plenty of mandarins. The trees are healthy. I'm not real concerned about it. It'll be hard for me to correct. The pH of my well water is eight. So it would be very difficult for me to bring that down to the six to seven range that's considered desirable. Um, you can see these micronutrient deficiencies look at one other factor, and that would be overwatering. That's a very common one. When you've injured the roots by overwatering, their root hairs are damaged. They can't take up the micronutrients, even if the mycorrhiza are present. And so the plant will show a deficiency because you've injured the roots. Probably will show some other problems as well, but one of the symptoms in some plants is a micronutrient deficiency. So correct those things first. Water correctly and don't rush out to buy iron chelate or something like that. There's a there's another reason typically that it's deficient in the plant. I would I, I really am concerned about people trying to mess with soil chemistry without having a good foundation starting with a soil test, rather than just looking at perhaps the environmental factors that caused the problem in the first place. So I hope that answers the question to some degree. If you tell me what you like to fertilize with, what products you like to use, I could give you a guide for when you would use those with best effect. And it can be very interesting, though quite a rabbit hole, to go down to read about how fruit tree growers fertilize. And it's, it's inform, inf, informative and useful information. Uh, I guess that's redundant. It's informative in the sense of telling you what they're doing to try to get the best results, but it doesn't necessarily give you as a home gardener something that you can apply. As an example, citrus growers have found that the way they can feed their trees with a high level of nitrogen without polluting the groundwater is spraying them in late winter with low biuret urea. So you want to go out and find some of that and get a sprayer to use on your trees. And I, you know, I've, I've looked into this and it looks like it works really well. It actually is absorbed through the leaf stomata and some of it drips down and gets taken up by the roots. But that's not a real practical thing for homeowners to do. You probably don't have a spray rig that'll cover your tree real well. I don't know where you're going to get low biuret urea except at a farm supply place. So we would focus on off-the-shelf products that you might already be using. And you might you know, send us a note, follow-up note, which products or types of products you prefer to use, and I can give you a little better guidance. I hope that helps. So. Well, our next topic is one that I requested, and I wanted to talk about transplanting details. So the real detail, the real specific things. And Don said transplanting, and he meant something different than I did. So yes. I'm going to call it transpotting. I want to move it from one pot into a slightly larger pot. I learned and, a phrase from one of my employees that I had to. never heard before, and she used it regularly, and it's up potting. Up potting. Up potting. Okay. Up potting. And uh, what that means is you're going from one pot to a bigger pot. Whereas transplanting, indeed, is taking something from a pot or one place in the ground to a, another place in the ground. So we'll refer to up potting. All right. All right. So here's the situation. And then I want to get into the details. You know, Don, let me see if I can explain it. And then you can correct me if I've gotten it wrong. How's that? Yeah, he's laughing at me. Okay. Uh, so sure. I have I have a plant. Of course, it's an imbutalon. It has to be an imbutalon. You know that. And, and it's and it's in a pot. It's, you know, better about a a two gallon or one, let, let's assume it's a one gallon pot and I'm going to put it in to a, oh, a two gallon pot. Mm -hmm. That's an okay uh, amount to change, isn't it? To go we generally go up, we generally go up one container size uh, okay. within this particular range, one gallon to two or three gallon, two or three gallon to five gallon. Sure. Okay. So one to two. So I've got the plant and I've 
So I've got some soil and, and I got potting soil. Now, the plant isn't one that I potted originally, so I don't know what kind of soil is in it. So I figured what I'd do is I'd take that one gallon container and hold my fingers on, on the top of the soil so that the stem goes between. And I'm, I'm holding this plant upside down with, with roots and dirt and stuff and sort of um, ruffle the, the dirt and try and loosen it up and let a bunch of it fall off. So that I'm 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 removing any excess dirt that's down there that because I don't know what it was, and then looking for roots that are circling, and if they are, I'm either going to pull them away so that they're stretched out, or I might just cut it off depending upon how much how many roots there are in there, and uh, and then I'll take the new pot which I have filled up about a third of the way with soil. And then I'll take the plant in my hand and lay it down gently on the soil and then take the, the loose potting soil, not the stuff that came out of the old pot, but new stuff, and put that around the sides so that it, it falls down in on the edges. And then um, take my fingers and just sort of tap down on the around the edges so try and settle things. Now, the way I do it, and I don't think this is the way you do it, is I have a big bucket next to it that is bigger than the two-gallon pot. And I set it in that, and then I take water, and I just water the whole thing until it's it's filled up mm-hmm. to the level of the soil. And I shake it a whole lot so that it settles out any air pockets. And then when I pull it out, I may have to add a little bit more soil. But that's what I was going to do. Now, tell me what I did wrong. It's all fine. The soil that it's in is probably mostly mineral by the time you do this transplanting because the organic portion of the potting soil has largely broken down over the first year. And this may well have been in a pot for more than a year. So it's probably very sandy or there may be some perlite or pumice in there. It's nice if the new soil, either the new soil mix that you're putting into looks somewhat like that, or even better, if you get most of that old soil off of there, if you possibly can somehow, depending on the plant, you got to be careful because some plants have fragile roots and some don't. Butylon roots are not fragile. I'm not concerned about it. So the first thing I do when I take a plant out of a pot is I evaluate the, the root condition and the soil that it's in to see what I'm dealing with. And sometimes I take out something that's so root bound, circling roots, you know, that, that I'm just going to be chopping them up and gouging them and pulling them apart. In general, by the time I move it into the new soil or into the ground it is not in the shape of a cylinder anymore the root the root ball is not a root ball it's been torn apart it's been opened up so that the roots can spread roots that are clearly circling and not going to stop circling are cut off and when people watch us do that they freak out but it's better to do that than to have a woody plant with a circling root that's going to cause it to be unstable in the future especially trees but it goes for anything really so you try to match the soil as much as you can and the only reason for that is that sometimes it's very hard to get that old soil out of there so you now have a a core of old nursery soil that's now surrounded by something different. We don't want that. We don't want two different soil types because then you run into watering problems. You run into problems where the soil outside is staying wet and the soil, the old soil around the root ball is drying out or vice versa. The the, the most common problem we see with orchids, for example, is the they bring them in in this moss material that's staying soggy and they put them in bark without removing the mossy material. So you have a soggy core surrounded by drier bark and that's just not optimal for the roots. So you want them to be able to explore out from the old soil into the new soil, either by breaking them up, 
having soil that matches, or as I say, just getting rid of that old soil, if that's possible or practical with the plant. Everything else you've described is fine. We do this for people all the time. When they buy a house plant, very commonly when college kids buy a house plant, they ask when it needs to be transplanted. We pretty much say, how about right now? We'll do it for you and we'll just charge you a couple bucks for the soil. Other places will probably charge more. But when we do that, we skip one step, which is that we don't water it in because we don't want them walking out with a dripping thing. Yeah. We've done everything else except that. And we say, now, when you get this home, set it someplace where you can put enough water on this to settle it in and flow out the bottom. And it may be a cup or two or three of water that's going to flow out the bottom. So make sure you plan for that. Here's a saucer to go with it because we think of everything. <laughs> Take this with you, set it in the saucer or your sink, whatever works. And be sure to water it in when you get home because that is important to settle air pockets if there were any. Settle the soil. See if you inadvertently put it in too low. If you did, this is your chance to tug it up a little bit. Most plants you can to make sure they're not down buried by potting soil should be up a little bit, just like in the ground. Um, other than that, everything you described is just fine. The only risk is overpotting in some cases where you go, let's say, from a one-gallon abutilon, you said to move it right up to a five-gallon. Many nurseries will do that. Nursery soils tend to drain very fast. They're designed for that. If you put a plant in a much larger container, uh, you're going to have a risk of overwatering. The soil around it is likelier to stay wet longer, and it's likelier to lead to rot problems. So if you're good at not watering, up potting to a much larger pot is not a huge problem. For most people, you go up one to two inches in diameter, one gallon to two gallons, six inch to eight inch, and so on. So that's the main reason we don't want you to jump up to a much larger container. Other than that, though, you're describing the process of moving from one size container to another pretty well. You just want to stay with the same type of soil if you possibly can. I do suggest for most people, and I think we've said this when we talk about houseplants, try to find a potting soil you like and stick with it. Uh, that way, all your plants are going to be more or less on the same cycle of soil drying. Now, obviously, if you're a real plant collector and you've got hoyas and succulents and cactus and ferns and, you know, all those different things and orchids and normal plants, uh, then they're all going to have different soils. But we're trying to get you to where you have a soil that allows you to water once a week or once every two weeks in the winter. Not something that's gonna be draining out so fast you have to water all the time. Not something that stays so wet that you're gonna to lead to root rot. So something that drains reasonably fast that you're comfortable with. And once you find that soil, I really suggest you stick with it because having a whole lot of different soil types with different house plants around your house can be very problematic in terms of watering. And watering is the number one problem we see with house plants or plants like a butylon, which you're growing as a, I don't know, you're doing it indoors or outdoors? Indoors. Okay. Yeah. So um, we just want you to get to a more stable soil type. And in general, that does not include the one it came in. So this is one of the reasons we usually offer to transplant as we hammer home here. The soil mixes that greenhouse growers use are great for the greenhouse growers. They lead to a wonderful plant and they're often very high in peat moss or coir. So they tend to be much more challenging for the home gardener to water correctly. So we really do suggest when you buy that house plant, probably that's a very good time to transplant it into your now favorite potting soil brand. Is it time to plant tulips? Do you need to put them in the refrigerator for a couple of weeks? Oh, it must be fall. I, I, <laughs> I didn't put them in the refrigerator soon enough. So should I use the freezer to make them cool off quicker? <laughs> It must be fall in the nursery business. Yes, the bulbs are arriving at nurseries in the region. We've received all our tulips, curiously. That's what came first. I don't know why. The daffodils aren't here yet, folks. They'll be along, I'm sure. Um, you do not, let's back up here. Tulips, hyacinths, and giant crocus should go into soil that is cool. 
you don't have to cool the bulbs. There's a different reason for that. They should not go into soil that is warm, like late summer, early fall soil here, or else they sort of try and start to grow and there can be problems with that. So they don't develop properly. So here we strongly recommend a buy your tulips whenever you want to, store them wherever you want to, but don't plant them out until we're either mid-November or we've had a couple of rainstorms that have cooled off the soil. Typically November, December, and January are when I recommend planting tulips hyacinths, and the giant flowered crocus. I always distinguish that because the species crocus seem not to be problematic in this regard. So you can get them now. Nurseries have them, great selection. And then you can just hold them until your soil has cooled off, which you can measure with a soil thermometer or look online, see what the night temperatures are, or really just an inch of rain will usually take care of it. It'll bring the soil temperature down where it needs to be. Daffodils, ranunculus, anemones, uh, species crocus, species tulips, the, the little miniature ones, uh, tritelias and 57 other different kinds of bulbs. You can plant whenever you can buy them. So they're all fine to go in now if you're finding them at garden centers. Hardware stores curiously bring them in in August or early September, which doesn't seem like bulb planting season here to me, but that's when the bulb distributors ship them out to them. Um, putting them in the refrigerator for the four to six or six to eight weeks or whatever has been recommended by your favorite bulb guru, that will lead to bulbs that bloom all at the same time. So as you want a bunch of red tulips blooming all at once at the same height, looking identical, like those beautiful pictures you see of Dutch gardens, then you put them in the refrigerator for four to six weeks and uh, you bring them out and wait until the soil is cool to plant them anyway. So if you bought them now and put them in the refrigerator, that'd be just about perfect. And then you plant them all at the same depth, very important, pretty close together to get the impact that you're after and they will grow and bloom together. And you'll have that amazing look of 10 tulip plants all in bloom for seven days all at once. Uh, whereas if you just stick them in the ground, like I'm suggesting, they'll bloom a little differently. Oh, this one will bloom and then that one will bloom. To me, you get a longer bloom, so that's fine with me. But the purpose of that chilling here in Northern California, at least, was for uniformity in, in the outcome. And it doesn't matter at all with daffodils or any of the other types of bulbs. It's just basically tulips and hyacinths. Sunset Magazine years ago did a test on this at their Menlo Park facility. Okay, so Menlo Park is coastal Bay Area, uh, mild climate. Um, by November, they may be getting soil temperatures where they need to be, but they tested chilled ones against unchilled ones. And that was the basic outcome. The chilled ones all bloomed together so it made more of an impact. So for a display garden, that would be appropriate. If you're working in a public botanical garden, that's what you would do because that's the look you're after. Home gardeners, I think you'll get a longer bloom if you just plant them at, when the soil is at the right temperature and let them bloom on their own schedule. I mean, a tulip only gives you like five to seven days of flower from that one bulb. So wouldn't it be nicer to have them stretch it out a little bit? But that's your choice. It's not necessary. You want to kill the bulb, put it in the freezer. <laughs> and that will freeze it rock solid and that'll be the end of that. So, Don, when we're talking about onions, tell me about the Stockton red onion. There was this article <laughs> that came out. It's like it used to be there. Then it got replaced. It's from Stockton. No, it's not. What's this? What? We get people asking for this here in the Sacramento Valley. People have known the onions from Stockton, um, if, which were the Stockton red, Stockton yellow, Stockton white. When we first opened, those were the standard that we sold in the 1980s and 90s. And um, people keep calling around and we got a call from someone wanting to know if we're going to get Stockton red. And I said, no, we get red burger. And they said, well, I want the Stockton red. OK, I'm not an onionologist. But I talked with one a long time ago, and uh, he sold most of the onions in the Sacramento Valley. So this was someone who knew his seeds and his onions. Um, these are improvements on the Stockton Red. I know old guys don't like to hear that word, but these are improvements on the Stockton Red that were more disease resistant, 
more reliably productive, less likely to try and flower. And again, if they flower, they don't store as well. So we get red burger, which looks very much like, grows very much like, tastes very much like the Stockton red. It's just an improved version of it. I think that many of them were called Stockton red and yellow because there was a big distributor in Stockton, Lockhart Seed, who we used to get our onions from many years ago. They went out of business about a decade ago. They were one of the main suppliers to small farmers, truck farmers, even some bigger operations of onion starts. And they've made famous the whole Stockton series of onions. Um, and the actual Stockton Early Red was created here at UC Davis at the yes. University Farm from the Italian sweet red onion. So yeah. it itself is just one of the stopping points as the onions improve. Yeah, it was the UC Davis University Farm way, way, way back when. It was introduced in the 1920s or 30s. I mean, when UC Davis was still just the farm campus for UC Berkeley. Uh, and they were named Stockton, I think, because the distributors were in Stockton. It's very good. They would be great. I could certainly sell them if they were available. But again, the new ones, like Early Red Burger, which is the one I stock, replaced a lot of Stockton Early Red because it came out a little earlier little flatter, better color. A lot of people just went to that variety and dropped the Stockton Early Red, and that's what's happened. So uh, there aren't that many distributors of these things out there. If one of them, a big one, makes the decision that they're going to do an improved variety, that's what you're going to get. So you kind of have to ask you to trust the plant breeders here. There's a reason for introducing these or an improvement. And the flavor, basically, I have to say this, the flavor profile of onions is primarily related to your soil. So if you are growing this one and you thought it was great and you grow another red onion that's considered to be an improvement, my guess is you won't notice a flavor difference. The flavor profile of an onion is the biggest factor in it is the sulfur content of your soil. What that does is it affects not just the aroma, the sulfur that comes off. And when you put a chopped onion in a pan and start it simmering, sizzling on some oil or something like that, the first smell you're getting is simply sulfur that's been released. Interestingly, people find that pleasant. Um, and then you get the other compounds. If you're in areas with low sulfur soils, like Walla Walla, Washington, or of a daily region of Georgia, you get very sweet, less pungent, less stinky onions and they become quite famous. The Walla Walla onions are famously sweet. You can eat them like an apple, hard to imagine, but they say that. Vidalia onions in Georgia, Maui onions, low sulfur soils. We have plenty of sulfur in our soil here and most places that you're growing onion, at least sufficient for this aspect of it. So the new red onion will probably taste just like the old red onion here. If you move somewhere else, they both taste different. I have to explain this frequently to people because they think that there's significant flavor differences between the onions. There may be slight more sugar content in one. I've got people that swear by Italian red torpedo onions, even though our experience is they tend to flower more often than not here, but I stock them every year for these people who really want that old Italian heirloom style. Uh, that's one where we really need some improvements because it, it does tend to flower and it's not a great garden plant compared to the other onions that we're all selling and growing, but some people swear by it for the flavor. Probably has a higher sugar content. That's my best guess on that one. But most commonly, the, the, the flavor of your onion is a function of the soil that you're growing it in. Now, you asked about bulbs, and I just want to mention, bulbs have sort of fallen out of favor uh, with the public in terms of, you know, planting them in the fall for spring and summer bloom. 
But if you are a bulbologist, if you are a geophyte fan, as I am, if you like the things that come from the ground and bloom without any effort on your part, uh, that goes for almost all the bulbs. They're very low input. I have a lot of information about bulbs at my business website, redwoodbarn.com, because I did a two-hour seminar on the subject a few, many years back, about 20 years back, for a, a university class. And so I sorted them by geographic region of origin, which is useful to Californians because it tells us something about where they're going to grow well here or how they're going to grow well here, which ones are poisonous because some bulbs are toxic and it's important to know that, especially if the bulbs themselves are lying around in your house or in your refrigerator, um, and which ones uh, grow well and which ones don't. So you can go to redwoodbarn.com. I have about seven different articles and charts and a whole database that shows all this information. Just There's a little Google search box that searches within the website itself. Just type bulbs and up will come seven or eight articles on the subject. I really wish the public would circle back to bulbs because they're one of the easiest garden plants you can grow as a category. You get your soil ready, you put the bulb in, you put soil on top, you water it, that's it. And there are bulbs on my farm that I did that to in the 1980s that are coming back and blooming and multiplying for me. Some of them will do that. Others, okay, it's a once or twice and that's it, like tulips and many hyacinths. But there are bulbs that become such easy garden plants. And it's a category that sort of baffles me because landscape designers don't incorporate them in landscape design plans because they're, I don't know, they're other, they don't fit in their category. They're a perennial. They're just a perennial, just like Agapanthus, which is a geo, has a has a bulb-like structure that stores stores moisture and stores nutrients. There's common plants that we use that are in this category, but they don't usually design in daffodils or even our native bulbs, of which there are several species now on the market of California native bulbs that you can buy at good garden centers. So keep them in mind. If you're doing a new xeric landscape, you've got big open areas between the salvias and the rosemary. Put some bulbs in there and they'll come up and bloom for you just on the natural rainfall. Most of them don't need any supplemental irrigation in the summer here. Just one of those groups of plants I urge you to reacquaint yourself with because they're so easy and so rewarding. Many of them multiply, some don't. So that's an important thing to ask your local nursery professional about. Don's articles are available on his website, redwoodbarn.com. And the easiest way to find the best article that I've ever seen about bulbs is to go there and go to where it's got that little Google search window and type in geophyte, ah, yes. G-E-O-P-H-Y-T-E, geophyte. And boy, it's a wonderful article. That's also a place to type in fall color to find <laughs> the article that goes into much greater detail about uh, how why plants turn color and all that stuff. Boy, it gets into the weeds there. Well, like <laughs> weeds, it's into the roots. There you go. Geophyte is a term for all of the structures that are like bulb. A bulb is a, you know, they're true bulbs, like an onion is a true bulb. Lilies are true bulbs. Many other things that we plant as bulbs are not, in fact, truly bulbs. They're corms or rhizomes or whatnot. There's some description of that. So geo just means earth and phyte means plant. So these are plants of the earth. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.